0: They drove by Kramer's office for the first time around 4 a.m. "'Too bad we can't bomb his house,' Raleigh said softly. "'Yeah, too bad,' Sam said nervously. "'But he's got a guard, you know.' "'Yeah, I know. But the guard would be easy.' "'Yeah, I guess. But he's got kids in there, you know.' "'Kill them while they're young,' Raleigh said. "'Little Jew bastards grow up to be big Jew bastards.' At 4.30 in the morning... Cahall parked the car in an alley behind Kramer's office. They jimmied the rear door of the office and entered quickly with the box of dynamite. Two weeks earlier, Sam had presented himself to the receptionist, under the ruse of asking for directions, then asked to use the restroom. In the main hallway, he had spotted a narrow closet filled with stacks of old files and other legal rubbish. Stay by the door and watch the alley, Wedge whispered coolly, and Sam did exactly as he was told. He preferred to serve as the watchman and avoid handling the explosives. And this is the way they had divided the labor on their previous jobs. These included a Jewish-owned realty office that had sold a house to a black couple, a newspaper whose editor had uttered something neutral on segregation, a synagogue in Jackson, and the home of a Jewish family called Pinder, whose offense was just general, overall nigger-loving Jewishness. Five minutes later, they were back in the green Pontiac. In each of the prior bombings, Wedge had used a 15-minute fuse, one simply lit with a match, very similar to a firecracker. As part of the exercise, they had then cruised nearby, waited to hear and feel the explosion rip through the target, then made a leisurely getaway. This night would be different. Sam made a wrong turn somewhere, and suddenly they were stopped at a railroad crossing, staring at flashing lights as a freighter clicked by in front of them. A rather long freight train. Sam checked his watch more than once. Raleigh said nothing. The train passed, and Sam took another wrong turn. The street they were on was lined with run-down houses. The ground would shake in less than five minutes, and Sam preferred to be easing into the darkness of a lonely highway when that happened. The next wrong turn proved to be the last. Sam hit the brakes as soon as he realized he had turned the wrong way on a one-way street. And when he hit the brakes, the engine quit. Damn it, Sam said through clenched teeth. Damn it, it's flooded. By the time he got the engine started again, at least fifteen minutes had passed since they had left Kramer's office. Sam wiped rows of sweat from his forehead. What kind of fuse did you use? Sam asked as they finally turned onto Highway 82, still within range of Kramer's office. Raleigh shrugged, as if it was his business and Sam shouldn't ask. They slowed as they passed a parked police car, then gained speed on the edge of town. Within minutes, Greenville was behind them. What kind of fuse did you use? Sam asked again with an edge to his voice. I tried something new, Raleigh answered without looking. Something you wouldn't understand. Sam did a slow burn. A timing device. Something like that. The horror of the Kramer bombing actually began about the time Raleigh Wedge and Sam K. Hall parted ways in Cleveland. It started with the alarm clock on a nightstand not far from Ruth Kramer's pillow. When it erupted at 5.30, the usual hour, Ruth knew instantly that she had come down with the flu that had been circulating through Greenville for a month. She had a fever, a vicious pain in her temples, and she was quite nauseous. The maid woke the twins, Josh and John, now five years old, at 6.30 and quickly had them dressed and fed. Marvin thought it best to get them away from the virus, so he said goodbye to Ruth, who was lying on the floor of the bathroom with a pillow under her head, and left the house with the boys. He would drop them at the nursery school himself at eight. And in the meanwhile, they could play in his office. The office was a sprawling three-story structure. Marvin worked in the largest room on the first floor. Next to it was the cluttered, narrow closet. And across the hall was Marvin's secretary's desk. The second floor housed additional workspaces and the third was used for storage. They arrived at the office around 7.30. Once inside, the twins headed straight for their father's secretary's desk and a thick stack of typing paper. At about quarter of eight, Marvin went upstairs to the third floor to retrieve a file. As things evolved, the file saved his life. With the blast from the closet shooting upwards and horizontally at about a thousand feet per second, Josh and John Kramer never knew what hit them. Their bodies were found under eight feet of rubble. Marvin Kramer was thrown first against the third floor ceiling. Then unconscious, he fell into the smoking crater in the center of the building. When he was found, he was rushed to the hospital. His legs were amputated at the knee. The time of the blast was exactly 7:46, and none of the other lawyers or secretaries was in the building. There were, however, two injuries to pedestrians. A two before hit Mrs. Milford Talton square in the face as she stepped from her parked car. She received a broken nose and a nasty laceration, but recovered in due course. The second injury was to a stranger named Sam Hall, who was cut on the neck and on the left cheek by flying glass. Cahall ran back to the car he was driving, sped away from downtown, and would most likely have made it safely from Greenville for the second time had he been thinking and paying attention. But he failed to yield to a patrol car responding to the bombing call, and when the cops stopped him, they found a man with blood all over him. Sam was handcuffed and taken to jail. The charge against Sam Cahall was failure to yield to an emergency vehicle, The maximum fine was $30. All he had to do was post this sum in cash, which he had, and he would be free to go as soon as the paperwork cleared. Sam paced nervously while he waited. He would have to disappear. He began to think of leaving Mississippi, maybe for Brazil or someplace. He was an idiot for returning to the scene, but if he just kept his cool, he thought, he'd have this thing beat. Half an hour passed before Sam was allowed to exchange the $30 for a summons to appear in Greenville Municipal Court in two weeks, and he was waiting for the green Pontiac to be returned when a man waved a badge at him and said, I'm Detective Ivy, Uh, need to ask you a few questions. He lit an unfiltered camel, offered one to Sam, then asked how his face got cut. Without looking at Ivy, Sam said that maybe he had been in a fight. Ivy sort of grunted. Then he peppered Sam with more questions. Where was the fight? Who were you fighting with? And why were you fighting here in Greenville when you live three hours away? Sam said nothing. Lies he knew would lead to more lies, and a pro like Ivy would have him tied in knots in seconds. I'd like to talk to an attorney, Sam said finally. The piece of glass in Sam's face was extracted by a physician and sent to an FBI lab. The report contained no surprises. Same glass as the front windows of Marvin Kramer's office. The green Pontiac was quickly traced to Jeremiah Dogan in Meridian. A 15-minute fuse was found in the trunk. A delivery man came forward and told the police he had seen the car near Mr. Kramer's office around 4 a.m., The FBI made sure the press immediately knew that Mr. Sam Cahall was a longtime member of the Klan and that he was the prime suspect in several more bombings. The case was cracked, they felt. J. Edgar Hoover himself issued a statement. Two days after the bombing, the Kramer twins were laid to rest. At the time, 146 Jews lived in Greenville, and with the exception of Marvin Kramer and six others, everyone attended the service. They were outnumbered two to one by reporters and photographers from all over the country. Sam saw the pictures and read the stories in his cell. The assistant jailer, Larry Jack Polk, was a simpleton who by now was a friend because as he whispered to Sam early on, he had cousins who were Klansmen and he always wanted to join but his wife wouldn't stand for it. He brought Sam the newspapers and fresh coffee each morning. Larry Jack had already confessed his admiration for Sam's bombing skills. Sam said nothing to anybody. He had already been charged with two counts of capital murder. But if Raleigh Wedge was to be linked to the bombing, then he would have to be found by the cops. Sam Cahall had taken an oath never to squeal on another Klansman. He fervently hoped Jeremiah Dogan felt the same about his oath. Two days after the bombing, a shady lawyer, Clovis Brazelton, made his first appearance in Greenville. He was a secret member of the Klan and had become quite notorious around Jackson representing all sorts of thugs. He wanted to run for governor, said his platform would stand for the preservation of the white race, that the FBI was satanic, that blacks should be protected but not mixed with whites, and so on. He was sent by Jeremiah Dogan to defend Sam Hall, and more importantly, to make sure K.O. kept his mouth shut. The FBI was all over Dogen because of the green Pontiac, and he feared an indictment as a co-conspirator. Co-conspirators, Clovis explained to his new client right off are just as guilty as the ones who actually pull the trigger. And Sam leapt ahead to where he could see the argument was headed. So I take the fall, he asked. No, you just keep quiet about Dogen. Deny everything. We'll fabricate a story about the car. Let me worry about that. I'll get the trial moved to another county, maybe up in the hills or some place where they don't have Jews. Get us an all-white jury, and I'll hang it up so fast it'll make heroes out of both of us. Just let me handle it. On May 5, 1967, Jeremiah Dogan, II was indicted for capital murder and the local district attorney proclaimed loudly that he would seek the death penalty for both men. Clovis did successfully argue, however, for a change of venue, and the trial took place 200 miles from Greenville before a jury of 12 white patriots. K. Hall, it was brought out in testimony, was actually employed by Dogan, who'd sent him to Greenville on an errand, and he just happened to be near the Kramer building at a most unfortunate moment. As for the dynamite fuse in the trunk, it probably had been left there by the car's previous owner, a Mr. Carson Jenkins, who was a dirt contractor from Meridian. Mr. Jenkins testified that he handled dynamite all the time in his line of work, so evidently he had simply left the fuse in the trunk when he sold the car to Mr. Dogan. Mr. Jenkins was a quiet, hard-working man and a Sunday school teacher. He was also a Klansman. But that was not revealed. After four days of trial, the jury retired to deliberate. Clovis promised victory, but notwithstanding all of the defense's advantages, two of the jurors dug in their heels and pressed to convict. The jury was hopelessly deadlocked, and a mistrial was declared. Sam K. Hall went home for the first time in five months. The retrial took place six months later in rural Wilson County, The jury was all white and certainly non-Jewish. This trial ended with a jury hung 11 to 1. Throughout the ordeal, Raleigh Wedge's name was mentioned only once, during a lunch break in the second trial, when Dogen whispered to Cahal that a message had been received from him. The message was clear and simple. Wedge was nearby, watching the trial and if Dogen or Cahal implicated him, their homes and families would be bombed to hell and back. Ruth and Marvin Kramer separated in 1970. Marvin Kramer was admitted to a mental hospital later that year and committed suicide in 1971. Ruth returned to her hometown of Memphis and lived with her parents. A new park in Greenville was dedicated to the memory of Josh and John Kramer and scholarships were established. But despite pressure from the FBI, a third trial did not materialize until after two significant events occurred in 1979. The first of these was the election of David McAllister as the district attorney in Greenville. At 27, he became the youngest DA in the state's history. As a teenager, he had stood in the crowd and watched the FBI pick through the rubble of Marvin Kramer's office. Shortly after his election, he vowed to bring the terrorists finally to justice. The second event was the 86-count indictment of Jeremiah Dogan for income tax evasion. Dogan was dead guilty, and with prison time on the line, his lawyer, not Clovis Brazelton now, worked out a deal whereby Dogan would testify against Sam Cahall in the Kramer case and in return would serve no time in jail on the tax evasion charges. To prod him along, the IRS attached all of Dogan's assets and planned a nice little fire sale. David McAllister then convinced a grand jury in Greenville to indict Dogen and his pal K. Hall once again for the Kramer bombing. After twelve years of living quietly, Sam K. Hall found himself once again facing the certainty of a trial and the possibility of the gas chamber. Much had changed in Mississippi since the first two trials. Blacks had registered to vote, and these new voters had elected black officials. The state had